0: Radhika Gupta, the CEO of Edelweiss Asset Management, is the only female head of any mutual fund company in India. It's a very interesting story. She studied at top American universities, then worked at McKinsey as a consultant, then found her groove and started up her own asset management company in India with two co-founders. Then she got acquired by Edelweiss and then started working her way up all over again. A year later after the acquisition, she was scheduled for her performance review, like any other employee in a company. So, she was called into a room by her manager and
1: told, that I am god-awfully immature, uh, emotionally immature. Like emotional maturity is one of the things that's going to hold you back. I was in tears in my first performance review when I was getting feedback. I was trembling and I was in tears, I had to run out of it.
0: We were talking about her transition from a business owner to an employee. Being a business owner is hard, but hey, you don't have peers or performance reviews, she says. It was an adjustment for sure. And this feedback, you might call it <laughs> criticism, was definitely harsh. But was it fair, no, no,
1: but I, I, I called like, for, you
0: know, or was you it perhaps biased?
1: And I asked. And her. I have learned to look at the take aside the criticism and look at the intent
0: of the person Radhika looked at the intent the person and the circumstance and as she goes on to explain later in this episode this was some of the most important feedback she ever got she says it played a big part in getting her from that one year performance review to being the CEO and then she tells us how Welcome to episode 26 of First Principles. Our guest for this episode, Radhika Gupta, describes Edelweiss, or any other mutual company for that matter, as a company that solves financial problems for customers. Simple. Going into anything else, she says, is way too complicated. Edelweiss operates in a crowded market with nearly 50 players, and it's surrounded by giants, rivals much larger than itself. But that also gives it the space to take risks and bets that larger rivals might not. That's how Edelweiss pulled in Bharat bonds into their armor, which shot up their assets massively. In the space of a few years, it went from being number 30-odd in the mutual fund rankings to number 13. As CEO, Radhika is a big fan of keeping things simple and effective. She has a straightforward way of dealing with workplace politics. A one-step way to shut down mansplaining. A very simple approach in trying to understand her consumers and an even easier but brilliant way of organizing her favorite poetry, excerpts and stories. In this episode, we talk about what is the problem that Edelweiss is trying to solve. How does Radhika define success? How does Radhika use an inner scorecard to not just evaluate herself but to also guide her? How does she deal with criticism and manage to separate constructive criticism from targeted bias? Why she doesn't believe in work-life balance? Why Radhika has a third category of priorities after personal and professional? And finally, her advice for young professional women. As you will hear, we've been changing the style and questions of First Principles in Season 2. Please do rate us or email us to let us know how we're doing. Let's start. Radhika, I'm going to begin with an excerpt from your book, uh, your 2022 book called Limitless, The Power of Unlocking Your True Potential. I haven't read it yet. I'm going to read it fully. I've only read excerpts and I promise you I'm going to send you feedback and notes on it. Good. Uh, In that, you talk about the Marshmallow Challenge, which is a long-running challenge that brings together a diverse set of teams, could be anyone. And they have to build a simple structure in 20 minutes using dry spaghetti, tape, strings and marshmallows. It has to be as tall as possible and it has to have a marshmallow balance at the top and be still standing at the end of 20 minutes. You say that the teams that consistently win it over the years are kindergarten kids. And the teams that constantly fail over time, the worst teams, so to speak, are MBA graduates. What is it that you see in the Marshmallow test?
1: I wrote uh, that example uh, because it's a powerful example. Also, uh, because I'm the daughter of a kindergarten teacher and that's less well known. But I think the example tells you so much about team building. I think teams that work together are finally about trust because... If you look at each individual, when they come into work, they come in their happy, best self, ready to give their best, ready to kill it at work. And yet there is so much that weighs each of us down. Insecurity, complexity. What will the other person think? And that's what you get when you see a bunch of MBAs. There's all this power management and dynamics and politics that you start managing. Kids don't manage politics. Um, And as I said, I got this example because every day when I would come home, I would share stories of my office with my mother. And my mother would share stories of her kindergarten kids with me, where a kid would go up to another kid and say, I don't like you, or I took your eraser because you stole my pencil. And that level of openness and transparency is amazing. And I think that truly is what makes a great and effective team. So that I think is the biggest thing that I took away from it. The second thing I took away, which is has been a lot more applicable to what I do, is that you don't need to be the big pedigree MBA. You can have that childlike attitude. You can be a bunch of misfits and come together and build a really tall tower. You don't need to be the conventional set of people.
0: The thing, I mean, as a parent, I say this as well, and um, with children, is that people, grown-ups, just haven't told them yet that there are things that you can't do. Like, for instance, about the example that you said, that you're not supposed to go and tell another child this, or this is the correct way to complete this challenge. So kids essentially just go and do things without constantly thinking about this is the right way or this is the wrong way, etc. They're
1: raw, they're they're organic, Uh, they're they're, they're natural selves. And I think when all of us are our, there's a lot of talk these days about authenticity, when all of us are our authentic selves, that's a very powerful thing to bring to the workplace or to life. My
0: next question is, how do you apply that lesson at voice?
1: How do I apply that lesson at Idilweiss?
0: Mm -hmm. The
1: marshmallow test. The marshmallow test. You know, if you ask me, one of the greatest assets that we've had in this organization, it's very conventional to say team. Uh, But it's truly been that. And, you know, we haven't had the easiest journey because we are operating in an industry which is largely backed by large players and some very large players also entering bank back, big names, etc., And we were a little bit of an upstart who nobody cared about. Uh, I say that there are a lot of star kids in the world and we were the, you know, unknown newcomer sort of making the debut, not even a celebrity newcomer. Couldn't hire anybody, etc. And we went through a little bit of a difficult run with our parent uh, in 18 and 19 uh, when the NBFC crisis happened. But the team has stuck through. And... I can't believe the team has stuck through because we paid a lot of money uh, or that we paid much more than everybody else did. I think the team has stuck through because this is a good place to work. This is a place where you can behave a little bit like a kindergartner. Uh, this is a place that I truly believe is very apolitical. In fact, I keep telling my head of HR, one thing I'm very proud about is there is no politic. They, they're just no sense of politics. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I, I want to interrupt you there. Yeah. I apologize for that. Because you said something very important, which is everyone says that our workplace does not have politics. Yeah. And a question that I have for you is that what have you done or what are you willing to do to ensure that? Because creating a workplace that has no politics isn't just about saying we will not tolerate politics. It is about when you spot something which is politics, you do something to stamp it out or to disincentivize it. So what do you do?
1: I think one single thing, which is when you spot it, when you see issues, you address them openly. I can't tell you the number of times I have had conversations and brought two people into a room, almost like my mother in her kindergartners and said, I know you guys don't like each other. I know you have an issue with each other. Can we talk about it and please sort it out? I know there is an issue. Let me sort it out. And the number, I almost say I run an HR academy here. The number of times I've told a person, I know you don't like these things about this person, but there are these four or five things about this person. And gradually what has happened is openness is built into the culture. So nobody is a perfect person, including me. But we have learned to accept each other for our strengths and for our problems and manage around problems. Family, happens hota hai. When you have a family, you don't break families, right? And each person has their own eccentricities. But we learned that when Papa is in a bad mood, I won't deal with him this way. And when he's in a good mood, I'll get things done. So we've learned to manage around each other.
0: So there's a contradiction in what you say between the Indian family and this attitude to work. I mean, what you're saying, which is essentially bringing two people who have issues with each other into a room, verbalizing exactly what the issue is, is not the way Indian families operate. Uh, you talked about papas in a bad mood. We never say that in public. We never, right? And I think that carries over to the people that we are in the workplace as well. If we've been brought up in homes where it's not okay to talk about, you know, the the tough feelings and the bad feelings, it means that in our workplaces, we are not going to do that as well. So when you do that at work, what happens? I mean, it's what happens when you bring people into a room and say, I know you two don't like each other. Talk it out. And then what do you do? Do you leave or do you continue to mediate?
1: Ah, uh, it depends. So, you know, so whenever you bring two people into a room and <laughs> they tell you that they, you tell them they don't like each other, the first is like, no, 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 no. I, I like this guy. I have nothing. Else. It's, it's not personal. You know, all that stuff will happen, and then you start talking about issues and you talk through issues one by one. Sometimes I'm a mediator. Sometimes I'm an initial mediator, and. Gradually, once people have realized they have an issue with each other, you know, people are smart. People are smarter than they think we are. And once people realize you know that they have an issue with each other, they find a way to solve it. In fact, you know, I was in a conversation before this and a very senior person on my team was saying, we were discussing some very contentious issues. And he's like, finally, you know, issues get resolved here and decisions get taken very quickly. And it just takes me back. He's like, which decision has ever taken long in this company? And it comes back to that marshmallow challenge. Because when there are tough situations, we confront them and we resolve them. And one of the things that is an outcome is, I do believe we are a very agile company. And that is a huge edge in asset management, or in any, in any industry.
0: All right. How would you describe Illinois Asset Management as a company? What does it do?
1: Utilize Asset Management and is a company that tries to solve problems for customers. It tries to solve financial problems for customers using the mutual fund platform. That's all it does. Uh, It's very easy to talk about any industry in its jargon, active especially money management. God, it can sound so complicated. I mean, reality is no human wakes up today thinking, I'm going to buy a large cap fund. Do I buy an active fund or a passive fund? People wake up thinking, how am I going to buy that dream house? How am I going to send my child to a better school than I did? How am I going to plan for something else? Am I financially secure for my next generation? People have financial problems. Money is a tool to solve problems and live a better life. And that is what we help you do.
0: All right. How big is it?
1: How big is it? So we manage today 1.12 lakh crore 1. 1.1 1 lakh crores in assets under management. Uh, sounds like a large number, but it is one. Yeah, beyond point,
0: a certain point in time. It just sounds like large
1: numbers. numbers, or large uh, numbers or that large makes us either the 12th or 13th largest asset management company. Yeah,
0: that would have been my next question yeah. because it helps you. So I understand there's about 40 odd players yeah, almost in the close, man-
1: Almost close to 50 odd players. This industry is expanded. Um, managing a total of 45 uh, lakh crores of assets. So that's where we are going. Uh It is a very fragmented industry where there's not, even the largest player will not be more than 12, 13, 14 percent. And at 1 lakh, which is, you know, 2, 2.5 percent of the industry, you are still a very large player.
0: When you took over as CEO, uh, Edelweiss was ranked 30-odd?
1: Something like that, yeah.
0: And you're now at somewhere between 12 12 and 13. So you've managed to cover a lot of ground Yes, uh, in a fairly competitive space. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Would it be fair to say that you operate in a sector where you're surrounded by giants?
1: Yes, you are. You are surrounded by uh, giants. And when we entered the space, uh, I think uh, that that was a bigger phenomenon. So... The narrative that I got told, and others who started at that time, was there's no hope for you in the business because the industry is consolidating. These words, the industry is consolidating, ring in my head from 16 and 2016 and 17. And if I can be frank, it's also an industry that's a little bit uh, that has a little bit of a cost system. So if you are large. You get all the exposure, you get all the media, you know all the distribution. Nobody really likes a small AMC CEO. This is something a distributor told to me in my first three months. It's like, if you're a CEO of a small AMC, nobody wants to meet you, nobody likes you. Um, so that's what it was. I have to say six years later, it has changed a little bit. More people are entering the industry. There's a lot more buzz and excitement about, oh, this one's going to start and that one's going to start. What changed? I would like to at least take a tad bit of credit for it. But, you know, a few uh, years ago, a prominent publication wrote this article about how the fact is new players are making it in this industry. there's someone like us who went from 6,000 to whatever, 6,000 crores to 1.1. And there are a couple of others. People who have found a way to appeal to the consumer, to solve a problem for the consumer, to perform, have scaled in size. And that perhaps has sent a signal to others that it's not too late to enter the industry. Because India is in her teenage years as an economy. I mean, mutual fund industry is so small in terms of its penetration. We are 16% mutual fund assets to GDP. The global average is now 80%. So there's so much space that it's not too late. And I think the success of small size, the so-called small AMC over the last few years and multiple ones has perhaps given people a sense that this is a large opportunity and it's not too late to try and capture it. There's another interesting thing that Prashesh tells me, which is that it's important to be significant. But in a market like India, you do not have to be obsessed with being 7 or top 5. Even if you do a good job as top 10, 11, 12, you twelve, you're significant. The opportunity is so large that you will build a very meaningful business. I think this is
0: a construct that exists not just in industry, but also in careers where a lot of people don't do things because they feel that I cannot be... Number one or number two at it. And in the process, they let go of the opportunity to be really good at it, enjoy something, and possibly like, you know, make a career out of it. I see this. I want to ask you a question about the market. How do you, as Radhika, see the market differently than others? What is the market that you see before you in which you operate? Which is different from how might the, the rest of the world might see it?
1: So... I see the market, one, is very large. I'll tell you what is common and what, what is different. I see the market is very large. I see the market is expanding. And I know the reason I was desperate to enter this. Inter- I, I was desperate to become a mutual fund CEO sometime in sixteen and 70. And I had never been one before. But I was a mutual fund investor. I see this as a great consumer product. I think for the Indian consumer, they can be no simpler product. So this market has to grow because I believe anything for the consumer that is good for the consumer will find a way. And the Indian consumer is getting more aspirational. So that I think is the commonality. How do I see the market differently? I think there are lots of problems to be solved. So if you talk to a lot of my counterparts over the last five, six years, they'll believe there's no product innovation possible in this market. I completely disagree. I think there's so much that you can do. Sorry Radhika,
0: allow me to rephrase my question. What I mean by how do you see the market differently is that yes, there is one version, uh, the traditional version is that you operate in the mutual fund market, right? But it's possible that there's another way to look at this market which is really like you alluded to it earlier that look, perhaps we are in the market where people are trying to buy a second home or like. So my question to you Ah. is that Is there a way like, you know, that you see the overall market that you're operating in, which is very, yes, it is mutual funds, but it's also something else. Is there something else?
1: I see us, as I said, I see us as someone who solves financial problems. And if you restrict your domain to being a mutual fund professional, even though that's the, the mutual fund is a platform to solve problems. It's a regulated platform to solve problems, but we're in the business of solving problems. I think one thing that does help our approach, because a consumer has a lot of financial products as choices. Uh, They can go do NFT. They can go buy Bitcoin. For the consumer, even though that's unregulated, by the way, that is also a financial product. So we are solving problems using mutual fund as a vehicle. I think that's the way. And in every product committee, we have this notion of a product committee where we approve new products. I am very passionate about products and product development. We ask ourselves this question, are we solving someone's problem or not? Because I can market anything and make it successful. But are we solving someone's problem or not? And I think that is perhaps what has helped us be a more innovative asset management company over the last six years. That that tireless focus on solving problems.
0: Hmm. I mean, um, you say that you're in the market of trying to solve consumers problems I, w- I have a question here do consumers see this as a problem or do they see it as an opportunity I'm, and i think the way people approach the two psychologically is very different right if i have a problem and i have to solve it i'll tend to defer it but if i see it's like greed versus like am i, am I is it like a vitamin or is it like uh, uh, is it something that allows me to prevent you know, something bad happening or is it allows me something that lets growth happen? Which one is it? Is it a problem? Is it an option? No, so
1: we are a growth asset class. Maybe maybe the word is problem, maybe the word is goal. So we are in the, you know, investing is purposeful, right? Nobody sits and plays a contest. You know, you made X rupees, I made this rupees, you made that return. When I say problems, I think we are here to fulfill consumer goals, That's that's what we are here to do. So I believe the best kind of investing is oriented towards goals. Otherwise, what you do, if you do, if you follow the mantra of greed driven investing, there is no limit to greed. And one of the challenges, by the way, I've had with the finance industry is that it is one of the greediest industries in the world. I mean, Finance professionals, on average, are the most well paid professionals, and yet you have the maximum number of problems. The same is true of investing. You know, there is no limit to greed. I met a, I meet so many consumers, so many distributors. I met a consumer who was perfectly happy that they were earning 14, 15% returns compounded, Very good. Suddenly, they heard that small cap funds have given 30% returns. They got very agitated. That is greed driven investing.
0: Because then their 14-15% does not look that good enough when somebody else is making more than.
1: But the reality is, for their lifestyle, for their need, this person is a heart patient, is a single owner. They have to be conservative. For them, 14-15% is the right outcome. So for their problem, their goal, their circumstances, their purpose, that's the right. So greed scares me. Greed truly scares me in this business. Uh, And I'm also a child of 2008 because I saw that very early in my career.
0: All right. From how you see the market, I want to ask you, how do you see consumers? Often, one of the dichotomies that exists with consumers is what they say versus how they behave or what they disclose or what is actually revealed. And often they're two different things. You go and ask someone, is this a good product and would you pay for it? And they'll say, yes, yes, it's a very good product. But if you actually look at how they behave, you'll see something very different. So how? What are, how do you see consumer behavior as distinct from what research reports or direct questions often reveals
1: it? So firstly, in mutual funds or in money, especially in India, there is no one consumer. There are so many different kinds of consumers and you have to realize financial literacy and financial education is a process. So, and you really learn by making mistakes. So, Consumers almost have vintages. They're like they're like fine wines. They've aged. You know, if you are a consumer who started in the nineties and uh, saw a couple of corrections, hopefully you've become a slightly more mature consumer. If you were a consumer who started equity investing in twenty twenty one, in COVID, and you've hardly seen a correction, you are a different kind of consumer. So there is no uh, average consumer. I think consumers go through aging, um, but there there are commonalities. I think. You said there is a difference between what consumers say and do. In no industry, perhaps, is that more common than asset management. So we all think we have tremendous risk appetite when the market is good. Uh, I can take risk, you know, because I want to see the numbers. But the real test of risk appetite is actually when things go wrong. It's like the real test of character as a leader is when things go wrong. Uh, The real test of a family bond is when there is a crisis in the family. The real test of your risk appetite is also when things go wrong. And I think consumers take a lot of time to figure out what investing is right for them. So I commonly get asked the question, what's the best mutual fund scheme? What's the best mutual fund scheme, especially in India? The real answer is you should be asking what's the best mutual fund scheme for me? And that for me, Takes a, it's, it's a process of discovery for the consumer. It's not as easy as perhaps buying lipstick and realizing in front of a mirror, this shade looks good on me and that shade doesn't look good on me. That answer uh, is a lot quicker than this is right for me and that is not right for me.
0: Now, this thing of on one hand, we want to understand what's truly a good product for me. But I would also say a lot of people are not willing to invest the time themselves to figure that out. And I would also say, I mean, if you look at like the broader Indian population, they're also hesitant to pay someone else for that expertise. Okay, I'm not willing to spend my time. I'll pay someone else so that they can tell me. But the reality often is that neither do we invest the time ourselves to figure this out nor are we willing to pay someone else to figure that out as a result of which the products that we end up buying may not be what you said the best for me what's the structural solution to this um, from a mutual fund point of view
1: so everything you said is right and I, I often ask myself this question that if we don't Google medical advice, or we at least ask the right people questions for the most part. I mean, you Google a headache, but you don't Google any surgery. Then why don't we do that with financial advice? If we are not hesitant to pay our lawyer, and if we're not hesitant to pay, uh, you know, our doctor, then why are we hesitant to pay a financial advisor? Uh, Because I believe money is as serious a business as uh, these two things. And, you know, the problem has, I will come to the solution, the problem has become increasingly worse because financial advice, courtesy the world of influencers and social media, is so easily available and it's impossible to, and it's free. And so it's become impossible to distinguish what is good advice and what is bad advice. And the other problem with financial advice is its effectiveness and efficacy of medicine or surgery is found out in a month, two months, three months. Financial advice, the value of it is found out over years. You don't even know if the person you're taking advice from, is it good, is it bad? And sometimes, despite their best intent, someone may tell you invest in a conservative product. But you'll see the market go up like my small cap friend 30% and be like, hey, what did that advisor tell me? Um, So I think the answers are a lot more gray. When we started in this business, we started this campaign called Advice Zaruri Hai, uh, which we put a lot of energy into. And the real solution, and I keep telling regulators, this government, this, is that we have to popularize the notion of financial advice. That financial literacy, for instance, in the context of women, we said, Beti, padhao, Betty, bachao, all of that. But we now have to make our baby financially literate also. We have to make our consumer financially literate. So, a lot more work needs to happen on getting yourself financially educated and then how to choose someone to financially educate you. And this has to be structural.
0: So, this thing of advice, zaruri hai or advice is important. From a consumer point of view, are you seeing that shift happen where more people are comfortable soliciting, valuing, and paying for advice in some form?
1: Uh, is that change happening? So if you look at the numbers today, and we did this study on our own data. Uh, for a large part of the retail population, I'm not talking about the ultra high net worth. People are actually investing in mutual funds through distributors or financial advisors. Uh You know, the whole domain of I'm going to do it myself is largely restricted to a select set of people on Twitter, uh, as I call them. You know, 80% of the market is still skewed towards mutual fund distributors and financial advisors. It needs to grow. Of course, in that there are good apples and bad apples. But for the large part, I believe hand-holding helps. You know, this is an interesting fact. On our own data, we checked whether this whole statement on financial advice being valuable is actually a fact, what's the evidence here? And we found that people who invested directly, if you look at their holding periods with us, they were significantly shorter than people who had had assistance or intermediation. And in equities, really, the long game is the right game. I mean, hanging out long enough is what is going to create wealth. So there's also evidence that using advice is good for the consumer, for the large part.
0: Before I move on from this topic, I want to come back to incentives and advice. There are multiple long-running trends in this space of who do you incentivize and who do you disincentivize? For instance, if I pay an advisor, like, is that advisor potentially, like, Asking me to buy stuff because they earn a commission there. So, therefore, let's do away with commissions there and move commissions elsewhere. So, there's a lot of regulatory activity which is happening there. There's a lot of consumer activity. In your mind, what are some of the good things and that have happened around incentivizing good advice in your industry over the last maybe like five years or so?
1: so or I even think, closer? I think the good thing that has happened is multiple models exist. There is now a regulated model where you don't pay the mutual fund distributor or anything, but they earn from the asset management company. And they are very clearly a distributor. There's also an RIA model that exists where you take a fee. So both That's a registered
0: investment reg- Registered
1: investment advisor. So, the uh, RIA is not earning anything from the mutual fund company. They're investing in the uh, direct plan, which is the non-distribution class of a mutual fund. And so, both options exist. Both business models exist for the Person, The intermediary, both business models exist for the consumer. I think the other good thing that that has happened which people don't give enough credit for is the level of disclosure. So if you are an RIA, there's a certain set of rules that you need to follow. If you are a mutual fund uh, distributor and you're selling to a consumer, everything that you're charging to the consumer or you're earning is disclosed. So I think the level of transparency is incredible. Now, again, when I buy makeup, the pool of what it costs the manufacturer and what I'm paying the retailer and what everyone's margins in this are not disclosed to anybody. They're disclosed here. And so the consumer has a choice. I do believe, and this is a little bit of a controversial thing to say or not, I don't know, that too much hullabaloo is made around the cost of financial advice. I think Indian mutual fund products are some of the cheapest in the world. And I can give you countless stories and examples to illustrate this point. And when we spend, and I, I run also India's cheapest mutual fund, which is Bharat Bond. When we spend too much time focusing on the fee, we almost do a disservice. Now, let me give you one example. Uh, I have a help at home who helps take care of my son. And she was ta- telling me about another story. Uh, And, you know, these people earn well, they earn 40, 50, 60,000 rupees a month. She's telling me about a case where the person actually after working for 14, 15 years has two, three thousand rupees of savings. I asked what happened. And of course, there's a usual story. Many women in this country, husband takes everything. And then we were talking about SIPs, etc. And we started SIPs here. Now you can debate when I put up this on Twitter, people are like, "How many fees? Uh, what fees is she paying for an SIP? What is her distributor on it? Do you think it matters for her? The SIP is actually You're missing about
0: the word for the trees. Hmm.
1: The SIP is just her own hard-earned money, not going to her husband and going from her bank account into her own name. And this is the problem of a lot of India. That's why, isn't we are here to solve problems and make things purposeful. Now, for that fifty basis point. A 1% of fee that she's going to be paying, she's solving a much larger problem for herself. And you have to want to incentivize people to reach out to people like her. And this is not the poorest class of India, by the way. This is a well-to-do class uh, of people of India. If you don't incentivize the business of financial advice enough, you'll have what's happened in the UK where people only want to provide the service to the rich.
0: Let's switch lanes a bit and talk about careers. Mm. Again, some of the things that you've said. I don't relate to the concept of work-life balance. Mm. I love my job. I have the best job in the world. Now, all of these statements are today almost problematic for the younger generation. because How can you say you love your job? It's just a job. How can you say you have the best job in the world? Uh, how can you say you don't have work-life balance
1: god yeah my god I I would be killed for some of these statements man I want you
0: to talk about your career ladder. how did you get here how did you get to a place Hmm. where you're comfortable and confident enough to know and to be able to say I love my job this is the best job in the world Um, I don't like work-life balance because you're happy in what you do what was your career ladder like that got you to here? Could you take us back?
1: Yeah, so firstly, like many kids of my generation, I didn't grow up knowing what I wanted. In fact, I grew up in a background that was entirely civil services and government. So nobody had worked in corporate India. In fact, when I went to college and I went to Wharton Business school, etc. Was lucky enough to get financial help. Classmates of mine were like, "I want to do consulting. I want to do investment banking." For me, I didn't know these things. I this was all private sector for me. So the words in our house were: we knew about the difference between IES and IFS and ICS, and you know PCS, but we didn't know consulting versus banking versus tech. It, it that's that's the background I came up with. So I had no plans. I was a good student who did business and engineering, because that is what good students do. I mean, that that is really it. So I just did it for that. And my initial five, six years of my career, were pro- or at least three, four years of my career, were a process of experimentation. I did tech for two years as an intern at Microsoft. Uh, I had a tech degree. I was, then I was like, this is too techy for me. So like Goldilocks, I decided to do consulting. And I was at McKinsey for the analyst program. Then I was like, this is too high level for me. I want to How go- long
0: were you making thing? 18 months. endless
1: program. So tech is too techy. This is too high level. Then uh, someone gave me an opportunity in asset management. An alumni of the program I, was going, uh, I, I had worked at uh, or I had gone to school at. And uh, it was a role at a quant firm. So quant, the good thing was it combined some tech. So my tech engineering was not useless. And it, combi- it had some business. So I said, OK, both my degrees are getting justice. Let me try this. That is how I landed in asset management. All this time, my parents had no clue. They were like, all three careers are paying you a lot of money. or earning more than your father is earning at the peak of his career. So that was my kind of experimentation. I've been in asset management since then. So I've been an asset management professional. So in the first two, three years of flitting around, after that, I've been an asset management professional. Um, I did three, four years uh, at my hedge fund in the uh, US. I saw 2008, got promoted, and then in 2009, decided to come back to India. I promise you on a lark. Uh, In retrospect, it's probably the- Were you married then? I was married. I was married a year ago. I only asked
0: this because you- My husband was a co-founder,
1: yeah. So we decided to come back with a third co-founder. Completely on a lark. I have never lived in India um, because my father was a diplomat. Uh, My husband had lived in India. The other co-founder had lived in India. Neither of us had worked in India.
0: What was the trigger?
1: (laughs) See, there were subconscious triggers. If you look at an Indian's perspective abroad, between 2003 and 2007, India had this tremendous bull market. BRICS was being talked about. I feel it was the time India was emerging. In some way, the other thought was that you know you can't start a financial services business as a foreign national in the U.S. It's a very overpenetrated market in India, so it was literally like "chalo aake India karte That's how we did it, and you also have a little bit of arrogance of youth that I am doing in something in the U.S. that doesn't exist in India. I have all these big ideas, I have these great credentials, people will give me money. That was the trigger. Ah, uh, for which I moved So the trigger
0: back. was to come back to India and start something on your own. Yes. That was forefront capital. That
1: was forefront capital, and that was what was, was
0: forefront the... capital.
1: So forefront capital wanted to do non-traditional investing. It started out as a quant investing booty I think it was about ten years ahead of its time, um, and started out on the license called the PMS license, which is a high net worth investment license. Incidentally, you know, karma is a funny thing. When I was looking at SEBI regulations then, I wanted to be a mutual fund because even then we were like, God, this is all mutual fund. Then we saw the net worth and capital requirements for mutual funds and decided, OK, this is not doable. but we'll do a PMS. So in some way, I joke, I've been wanting to run a mutual fund since 2009. I got the chance to do it in 17. Um, and uh, that's why all...
0: why i mean I, this is the second or third time you're saying that you've been wanting to do what has been drawing you to mutual funds for years or
1: the joy of managing public money the joy of providing a solution not to the rich indian but to every Indian, a democratic investment product
0: that's the what's joy. what's if i were to ask you to kind of reflect where is that joy coming from why does that give you so much joy
1: I've reflected on this question, it's taken many years to find this answer and it's perhaps related to your question on why I think I have one of the better jobs on earth or the best job on earth or whatever you call it. I think for me over time, the definition of success, which is very individual to everybody, has become impact. Um, How many lives through my work can I impact? Because... Money matters, but beyond a point of time, you know, a certain amount of money matters, and more than that, it doesn't matter. Impact is very important to me. Uh, It could have come from the fact that my father was uh, in public service, uh, that my mother has had one of those noble professions. So maybe it was very subconscious. But for me, it was impact. I think India is about watching a country transform, and I I really believe we are very lucky to be building the generation that is building in India today versus my father's generation, I think we're tremendously lucky. So here, I want to do work that has a large-scale impact. It matters to me.
0: Got it. So to coming back to your career ladder, you came back, set up Forefront Capital with Nalin and another co-founder. Yes. And you ran that for four years. And I then... ran
1: that about four and a half years before we sold it to Elibides.
0: So that's your next transition. You've now gone from a founder... Uh, co-founder to now acquired but an employee of a much larger organization what was the transition like
1: it's actually tougher than you would think it would be and uh, i don't
0: think it would be easy at all i'm I'm sure so people
1: told me selling was a bad idea because they said you are foreign educated you have worked for big global brands you're going to join some lala company and they'll eat you alive so i always joke with rashish i was like nobody has eaten me thankfully um And none of that was there actually. I think this whole entrepreneurship and not being your own boss and all, I think this is all hogwash. One in life, everyone has a boss. Your customers are your boss. Your regulators are your boss. So this, nobody lives in a life where your Your investors
0: are your boss. boss.
1: Someone is your boss. I I genuinely think that if you believe you're living a life with no stakeholders, no? And Today, in today's generation, there is no boss-employee relationship. By the way, I can't get my one-year-old to listen to me. Do you think because of some hierarchy that HR has set, I can get someone to do something for me? This is all hogwash in today's generation. So this, nobody's bosses. But I struggled with it because the reality is I had been an entrepreneur for five years. You don't have performance reviews. You don't have peers. You don't have any of that, right? And I think, I mentioned this in my book, but I think being a young entrepreneur in India had made me very agitated. It's not an easy thing to do, right? Entrepreneurship is hard. It's hard in an industry like financial services, which is very age conscious, and you know, I was a young women also. So I was like aggressive out there, and in a corporate, there's a lot more you have to do. You have peers, you have reviews. Uh, you have to manage your emotions. In fact. One of the earliest feedbacks I was told in 2015 was that I am god-awfully immature, uh, emotionally immature. Like emotional maturity is one of the things that's going to hold you back. And I'm glad someone told me Sorry, who, who told you this? One and of my bosses where, told me this.
0: Uh, at what stage of your career?
1: Oh, I think 2015. One year after I sold the business. I was in tears in my first performance review when I was getting feedback. I was trembling and I was in tears. I had to run out of it. I would get angry with people. I would write signs on my desk saying, Radhika, don't blow up. It just came out of a feeling of entrepreneurship, a financial struggle that you go through as an entrepreneur. I mean, very few people talk about this. But you live on Wall Street, you're making a certain amount of money after roughing it out in college. You move back to India. And I know I come from a lot of privilege. And you're living in this tiny house and slumming it out or you know, struggling it out. I don't know what the words are especially when your classmates are all working, industrialist kids, it sucks, it affects Or those
0: of them who chose to stay back at McKinsey. Yeah,
1: all those. Well, you know, see, you don't care about those guys in the US. Because in the US, regardless of who your father is, all of us lead the same lives, right? We're all taking the New York subway, we're all meeting at the same places for dinner, we're all working 18 hours at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or wherever. There's no sense of inequality. When you come back to India, you start to feel that inequality and it hits you hard. So, all of this had built up in me and that's why I became what I did. Uh, And so, my first year or two was very difficult settling down and not difficult for business. Business was doing really well. It was growing, etc., etc. It took me time to find my feet here.
0: And then your next transition was to CEO in 2017.
1: My next transition was in uh, to CEO. And most people have, I was reading a book, where most CEOs have a story of what got them there. Some big project, some moment, etc. I had mine. Uh, Edelweiss uh, was a small mutual fund house. So the group had not focused on mutual funds. We had a license. And one day they decided to buy JP Morgan Asset Management. I didn't know about that. When the deal was crystallized, I was called into run the merger. Um, I had always been saying, I want more, I want more, I need to do more, I need to do more. And that is one thing, by the way, I recommend everyone should just vocalize the fact that you have a certain amount of ambition. And I think a day before the merger was Especially
0: enough,
1: women. Especially women, we just don't do it enough. And we know we don't do it enough. The tragedy is we know we don't do it enough. So I was called in to run that merger. And that merger changed who I am. Because I went from being, as I said, an angry young person who had never managed more than four people to someone who was managing an MNC and domestic company merger with 100 people. And I really credit this system for giving someone like me that opportunity because I don't know what this one. Except the fact that I wanted to do more.
0: And that unlocked the path.
1: And that completely unlocked the path. And later I put my hand up again, once again and said, if you need a mutual fund CEO, I'm here, I'm here. And I had all these Bachchan-like dialogues that said, you know, I may not have any experience, but I love this business more than anyone else will.
0: It's interesting you should mention Bachchan because just A few minutes ago you were saying angry young person and I was thinking angry young woman Uh, and now you've made the Bachchan reference. And
1: now I've made the Bachchan reference.
0: You've talked about the fact that women leaders are often judged for their looks, (laughs) for how they sound. You talked about the fact that, I mean, even though you say it was valid feedback, but I think one of the feedback that comes is you're too emotional. Whereas the fact, I mean, it, it remains that women have higher EQ as leaders as well. A man swears
1: on the floor and no one will say anything but a woman cries and suddenly she's emotionally immature.
0: In fact, one of the things on this podcast that I've been always conscious of is that when I'm speaking with women leaders I understand that a woman leader who's speaking on a podcast and says something funny, flippant etc will be judged for it much more harshly than another a male leader who does the same. So this is very much a reality. What's your mantra for, or what's your advice for other women leaders and professionals to not get consumed and overcome by, um, by this? This exists. There's no denying it.
1: Option one, have a thick skin. And thick skin is only built over time. I am the most sensitive person on earth. As a child, I would tear up the top of a hat. Uh, I won't say I'm thick skinned. But I am significantly more thick skinned. The second is, at least in my position, I started to call it out because I know. So, a few days ago, I had given my opinion on some topic, I don't even remember. And someone, yeah, I, I had written something about Nadi and Asadi and, you know, women being judged for their looks and the whole Isro thing happened and Chandrayaan happened. And I said, you know, the modern Indian woman is in a Sadi and Sadi doesn't mean Bahanji. And I was trolled by some people, that's fine. Someone decided that they're not going to just criticize my opinion. They said Radhika Gupta's opinions are as twisted as her squinted eyes. Then I call this stuff out because you can't do that. And I actually wrote, I was like, in my head, I think I look very nice. And the reason I write things like this is because women are judged for their looks. So. I think it's important to call out. I call out incidences of bias. When I was pregnant, I did this many times. I call out incidences where I'm judged and I confront it. It's the same kindergarten thing that we started the podcast with. If you stole my pencil, I'm entitled to ask you why I did it. Why you did it.
0: That's great advice. The, the things that you said about developing a thick skin or being confident enough to call out something that happens, happens over time. Right? Like it takes you a certain number of years to evolve there. I'd like to take you back to that conversation that you had with the boss that left you in tears. Mm-hmm. At that point, now on reflection, you're saying that that was good because it allowed you to understand how you needed to evolve. But at that point in time, you potentially had two paths in front of you. The, one of the paths that could have been taken was that this was inappropriate, this was targeting me and i need to do something what the other one that you chose seem to have chosen is that like you know i mean there was validity as well right what's your advice for i think women leaders and professionals early on in their career when they get adverse advice like this because it can be hard to get a sense of was this valid critical feedback or was this like for instance i couldn't figure out if you were being given feedback about your emotional regulation as because you were a woman or because you truly needed that feedback I I mean as a layperson I couldn't make out so how do you reflect on that incident today
1: think about if your mother gave you the same feedback would you feel bad about it separate the critic our parents
0: never give us good advice (laughs) when it comes to
1: profession and they never truly open with us it goes back to the original point you know you have to separate the critic and the criticism and I have learned to look at the, take aside the criticism and look at the intent of the person. And in this case, the person who was giving me this feedback was very invested in my career.
0: Huh. That's that's.
1: he, In fact, when he gave me the JP Morgan merger, and when that merger happened, no, I didn't know how to manage people. I didn't know how, I, I was terrified of public speaking. He would call me into his cabin, while he was having lunch, and just give me 30-40 minutes of people management gyan from his own experience. This is someone who managed 2000 people, he didn't need to do that. He was doing it because he cared for me.
0: So that criticism was coming from that place.
1: He once made me, he was supposed to deliver an integration speech to this audience of 100 people, and at a big off site, and he disappeared and he said, Radhika, you need to make the speech. Despite the fact that I was terrified of a mic. He did it because he wanted to push me. And so I have learned to identify what is trolling. Like the dude who, who, who's talking about my twisted eye, he's a troll. He's mean. He doesn't care about me. He's targeting me. But this person was not targeting me. And that would be my advice. Separate the critic and the criticism.
0: Alright. My last question on this topic is... How do you handle mansplaining?
1: I'll tell you a story. I was seven months pregnant. And I was part of something industry related. And some guy came to me and said, don't be on this conference call on a Saturday because you need rest. And I was like, first I was very angry. Then I actually called out. I said, listen, I'm pregnant. I'm not sick. You're not my husband or father, not that they can tell me this thing. And if I need medical help, support or rest, I will take it. And incidentally, by the way, a pregnant woman can answer the phone. Please add me back on this conference call. That's how I handle it.
0: I want to talk about like, you know, you've said, again, I love change. In fact, I thrive in chaos. Um I get the sense that you as a leader are are driven by conflict, chaos, confusion, mm-hmm. disruption, etc. You seem to be more of a wartime CEO than that, you know, for that notion of the peacetime versus wartime CEO. Uh, do you see yourself that way and and do you imagine what If things were peaceful, and if things were calm, would you be the same person that you are?
1: I've never reflected on that, but if I had to, I think a certain amount of disruption, a certain amount of chaos, confusion I don't like. Uh, I think I'm very clear headed.
0: What's the difference? Sorry, I mean, uh, you said chaos, you said I don't like confusion. To you, what's the difference between chaos and confusion? Because to a lay person, they couldn't sound like synonyms.
1: Disruption, chaos are external factors to me. Uh, they are things that happen outside your industry. Confusion is, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know my business. Confusion is internal. And the last thing, I want to be very clear. In fact, I believe internally, your operating model should be simple, clear, communicated well so that you can handle the chaos and disruption of the outside world. That's the framework that I operate in. Internally things, internal politics, internal poor org structures, once they are there, they weigh you down. They are again like your MBA politics. They weigh you down. You will not be able to build a marchfellow Tower because the reality is in all industries, there is external disruption and asset management in an industry as regulated as asset management and as... Dynamic as capital markets. You cannot live without disruption. And the market disrupts itself. So, I like that. Uh, that's so, the kind of person Yeah. So, I, I
0: get am. that now. I mean, your, please correct me if I'm wrong. Your operating model is internal clarity and conviction yes. in the face of external chaos, disruption, odds, yeah. constraints, etc. So, if I allow me to rephrase my question now, right? What if it's internal clarity versus external calm? Have you ever imagined yourself in such a situation?
1: Oh, have I ever imagined myself in a situation where of... things
0: externally are also perfectly calm and you know, relaxed? I've and...
1: never had one. I wouldn't mind it for <laughs> a while. Uh, I wouldn't mind it. Uh, you know, because I think sometimes you just need to build. I've, I've never had that. So I keep joking that I've never thought of myself as a wartime CEO, but I've always been a startup head. I mean, I worked in AQR Capital, which was not a large established outside of McKinsey, I've never worked in a large established outfit. And every rumor about every time a new AMC starts in this country, I seem to be the one in the news, even though, you know, I am not going anywhere. And I think it's because I am one of those startup fundamentally without being a startup person, I have become a startup person.
0: Also because you're more outspoken and out there. And I think yes. again, it comes back to that point about there is a cost that women leaders pay for being outspoken out there, yeah. and out there. You said that your motivation is your inner scorecard that helps you to build and develop other employees and the companies. Well. What does this mean? What do you mean that your motivation is your inner scorecard?
1: I found that very intriguing. God, it took me so long to understand this concept. Uh because I think in India we live so much of our life by someone else's outer scorecard. Society kya kay, family kyakar then in-laws in the case of whatever. There are so many outer scorecards that at some point you sit in your life and you're like, I've made all these people happy. Have I made myself happy? Um campus schoolmates kya I mean, I I call it in my book the Sharma Ka Beta Phenomenon that we all and I discovered, and you know, an inner scorecard is not something that if you discovered it at 21, fantastic. But it's not something I discovered at 21 because as you start working, you realize what gives you happiness and what matters and what doesn't. Um, and that's how you carve your own definition of success. I talked about impact. You know, for me, a second part of the inner scorecard is operating freedom. It's so important, it's so important, the ability to work in a place with trust, without constraints, without having to ask every time you're doing something, it's very important. Figuring this out gives you a tremendous sense of clarity. When you want to take a decision about a job change, about a life change, you just have to go back to your inner scorecard. When
0: did you develop your inner scorecard? And what is it broadly like? Can you give us the
1: contours of that? I think I figured this out about three, four years ago. Um, And my definitions of success are in my inner scorecard. What I will, which I talked about, this, I talked about impact, I talked about freedom, uh, I talked about respect. Um, What I will not do and what doesn't matter to me uh, is in my inner scorecard. Uh, So... Being the highest paid CEO in the country does not matter. paid well matters. What compromises I'm willing to make because life is also about finding a balance. Those are the things that are in my inner scorecard. It's not a very complex long document, but it's a certain mental clarity.
0: What what triggered it? Was it was it self reflection? Was it uh, you know any a, a retreat, uh, coaching, mentoring, um, like
1: So, I don't have an answer. I think one trigger for me that was very large personally uh, was a talk I did in 18, which was The Girl with a Broken Neck. It was a transition from lack of confidence to self-confidence almost overnight. And after that, a lot of awareness, reflection started. That unlocking moment. That I, I, I think... I count it as as powerful uh, incident that, that happened to me as becoming a CEO, or as going to what?
0: And that's where I think your point advice about owning your story comes about. So what I seem to be hearing is that like that moment is when that you truly started, started owning that your story. Moment that moment taught
1: me about owning my story. And I have never looked back since then.
0: You're someone who reads a lot. Yes. Not just like you know. I mean, uh, what because you're you operate in a sector where you need to read a lot and be abreast. You read a lot of books. You're consuming Hmm. a lot. What's your method or system for acquire for reading, consuming, cataloging, and creating knowledge as well? Because you write as well. I do. You've written a book. You've written articles, etc. So is there? a, a grand plan or a system that you have?
1: They're micro plans uh, but uh, I'll tell you some of the things I do. I do read a lot. I don't read the funny thing is for someone who's written a non-fiction book and who's in the finance industry, I don't read a lot of non-fiction at all. In fact I, le- I read literature most of the time so I will read foreign literature and I read a lot of poetry.
0: Uh, Kudos to you because there's a lot of people, me included, who f- who've now read so much of non-fiction that we find it hard even though we want to read fiction because that's where the true creativity I, I, comes from. I can from. only
1: skim non-fiction. So someone gave me a non-fiction book yesterday and I'm a very fast reader. I'm really fast. I skim non-fiction and then I write down the points and I'm done with... I mean, I can read a 200-page non-fiction book in two hours and be done with it. And I think get Because the there's
0: more. so much of filler. There's so well. much
1: filler content. Well, fiction I love. Poetry I love, you know. I grew up not learning Hindi because my dad was abroad, and I don't know how to read it well. Really. I learned my Hindi through Bollywood and poetry, and so I listen to a ton of poetry in Hindi and uh, English. I, by the way, use it a lot in my speeches and communication. So I love poetry. I,
0: sorry, l- wh- how? Say you're listening podcasts, to point. No, I mean, how do you? How does listening to a piece of poetry go from you listen to it? to at some point emerging. Is it emerging from your own brain or do you catalog it somewhere and then do you have a system? Again, I come back to that question.
1: That's a, So no one's ever asked me this. I'll tell you a secret. I use my phone aggressively and I have these notes and I have one note called poetry collection and I'll write down pieces of poetry alike, like and it's there and then when I'm speaking somewhere, I'll use it. Uh, I also memorize poetry. I have a good memory. Even when I go to also acquiring knowledge, outside of books, so I'll write examples from books and notes. So I have another section called book examples. I'll go to uh, events. So in the early days, there were a lot of Edelweiss events where Roshesh spoke and he gives some phenomenal examples in India. And I would be sitting there and writing notes of some example he's given and many others that I've listened to. And I have a section here called examples. And I start cataloging them and in my presentations, those examples come in and then later I confessed to him. I was like, you know, that example you gave in that SL meet, I've been using it here, here, here. It's been really popular.
0: That's how it should work. When you find an interesting nugget of
1: knowledge, you should copy it and reuse it. And it doesn't have to only be from books. It can be from, like I picked up this beautiful poem that Amitabh Bachchan recited on KBC after Chandrayaan. I I did a little bit of adaptation for our own industry and I just recited it in Odisha because I had cataloged that poem. So I cataloged a lot of these things on my phone. And my husband says that when Radhika has to speak, it's like bhelpuri being made. She's got all these thoughts and examples and ideas and catalogs. And she just mixes them into something. My book was written the same way. I just had references and references and literature and examples and everything. So if you read my book, you'll realize there's Bollywood and there's literature and there's the cat in the hat and all kinds of... It's all influences that I've had that I've cataloged.
0: Are you a big fan of feedback loops? Yes. How can you... I mean, are there important feedback loops for you at work, outside, like, you know, that you rely on to improve?
1: So many. Um, for the business and for me. um, So there's your regular feedback conversations. But one of the things I like to do here, which I think has been a very simple thing, but has been so popular is this. it's It's called a leadership connect with me. And I do it with every team every six months. And all employees are there. So if it's investor servicing, all investor servicing employees are there. And I don't speak in that. All I do is I sit there and I tell them, ask me whatever question you want. And I just answer the questions and I do that every six months with every team. We started this in COVID and we've continued it. In the beginning, nobody asked me anything of substance. The, of, not, not of substance, they would ask upper, upper ke question. Now people will ask me, I've heard a rumor you're quitting, is it true? That's how open we've got. Or why are we doing this line of business? It's a great feedback loop as to how people are thinking. We do the normal 360-degree feedback, NPSs, I look at that data. Um, I do a lot of catch-ups when I talk to branches with people, because I travel like a ton. Um, So, lots of catch-ups happen uh, informally there. But just keeping the doors open is my best feedback loop. In fact, I told my, we are in a business where risk is very important. I told my head of risk and compliance board, I said, We can put audits, we can put policies, we can put manuals, all of that. The best feedback that you guys will get if you just are friends with people on the ground. Just make people comfortable to talk around you. Everybody knows everything. They just don't say it.
0: How would you describe your management style?
1: I want to say accessible and easy for the most part. uh, But rigorous when needed. So, I find that you can have a mix of empathy and aggression in business. And it's a myth that you can't. So, you can be accessible. You can be talking to people. You can be out there. Like, I am the easiest person to get calendars with. I'm always available. Uh, nobody has to set up a calendar with me. People just come in. They walk in. They talk. So that's that. But I'm also… Is that by design? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I want to be available. I want to be available, and I want people to know I'm available. It actually makes for a far more apolitical organization because HR says, it's like finally all news comes to you, everybody knows all news comes to you. Um, But I also don't want to be over friendly, not over friendly. That should not lead to a sense of laxness in the organization. We run a money management firm, we are a fiduciary. So, there are principles. There is a strong sense of constitution. It's it's a little bit like a strong democracy, you know. There is a sense of constitution. There is a sense of operating principles and how we run our money, what we will do for customers, what we will not. But within that, it's a happy democracy. A happy place to be. I mean, it should be a happy country to live in, but it should have principles and a constitution. There should not be anarchy. Wait. Like I'm a Nazi, by the way, about preparation. So if we're doing an event and there is no preparation, I will get angry. And everybody knows that. And it's important.
0: What kind of a mentor
1: are you? What kind of a... One can always get better as a mentor. Um, But I like to think I try. Um, One of the things we've been trying to... I have come to where I am because of one or two very exceptional bosses who never said I am going out there to mentor you. They actually did that. Um, and so, I like to look at…
0: So, you're saying the best mentoring is when it's not labelled explicitly as a mentor. That
1: mentoring, in my view, never works. Because you put so much pressure on the mentor that I am going to change your life. And so much pressure on the mentee and they have yeah, to… Labelling
0: a relationship almost is, always. This is a disaster. Yeah.
1: And you put time commitment. But I like to think of people's careers. And I like to have a vision for people's careers silently… And help them work towards that vision. Create opportunities for them. Tell them these are areas you need to work on. Chalo, I want to do this. So I struggled with emotional maturity and people management. Someone came and helped me with it, gave me an opportunity, gave me a project. I want to pay it back the same way.
0: Changing tracks slightly, when you see a business landscape, um... Do you first see the rules and the constraints, or do you see the opportunities that exist perhaps even beyond it? Like, you know, what 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 do you naturally settle on uh, instinctively and focus on before deciding what to do?
1: The second. And this is an interesting question to ask someone in. In, some in a regulated form, I, I in understand. such a highly and I Respect regulations a ton. I am the daughter of a bureaucrat. so, And I think I have a slightly different point of view on government than most people do, because I believe it is an enabler. But I try to see opportunities and solutions and then work with policy to make it work. And I've had enough examples in my career where I believe that if you can put a compelling argument in front of someone, you can get policy changed to make it work. Bharat bond being the best example. So, I always like to start with a free world, apply constraints, and also know that constraints can be changed and rationalized. And they are.
0: Uh, great answer, uh, Radhika. I mean, to reflect on that, as Indians, uh, we earlier talked about families, we are largely brought up with a view of the world, which is a scarcity mentality, the way we form queues, the way we approach road traffic, etc. Whereas, I mean, modern management philosophy, etc. talks about learn to see the world through an abundance mentality, etc. and all that. It's not easy. And I think, I mean, this is related to my earlier point about do you see the world as like, you know, defined by constraints and rules or do you define by opportunities, right? So if you come back to scarcity mentality versus abundance mentality that also ends up defining the way we behave in organizations and in our careers about what is possible what am I supposed to do whereas unlike you said which is like you said that perhaps what you can do is really dependent on you if you really think outside of the boundaries do you see this as work and what do you do to change it
1: so I think it will automatically change because we grew up in a scarce India and my father grew up in an India of scarcity. My son is growing up in an India of abundance. So automatically, your mindset is going to change. But I must tell you, it, especially in the early years, it would drive me crazy when I would hear people say, in our industry, the industry there is a rule. So when you launch new products in mutual funds, there are certain categories that SEBI allows you to launch funds in. And one of the ways to think about new products is, Let's fill categories. My point is, let's build good products. We'll find a category or we'll create a category. And I think that is the difference between scarcity and abundance. One starts from a free space where you're focused on consumer first. One starts from a constraint space and then when you start with constraints, you build much less than the constraints.
0: This question might seem a bit odd so apologies in advance do you ever talk to yourself when it comes to you know conversing with yourself or uh, bouncing your own feedback against yourself having a conversation like how do you debate and resolve long running thoughts like for instance you talked about the fact about the inner um, scorecard etc
1: I write a lot, and I don't publish all of it. And my writing is in some way a way of
0: ah, that's your communication reflection back to with yourself.
1: myself. Uh, I write a lot. Uh, most people don't know that most of my tweets and posts come out of a bad day. Um, now as a CEO, you can't explode in front of a large bunch of people, but you can write. Um, I Also, I have to tell you, one of my learnings over the last few years is I have become a lot more open in talking to people. So I believe in the concepts of personal advisory boards, even being open. I heard something lovely that Renuka Ramnath said, um, is that even as CEOs, we think that a board is someone we need to show off in front of, whereas most boards and most people are sounding boards. Uh, And so I'm very happy. I mean, I told my boss this, Venkat this this time, so I'm very happy I have an equation with you where if I have a problem, I can come to you and talk about it. And just say, talk to me about this as a friend and help me work through it. And I believe I will not be judged. And I do more of that.
0: How do you think about your time when it comes to allocating? I
1: have too little of it. Uh, so look, I have always been, uh, since I was 12, 13, I have been a little bit paranoid about planning. So... I I mean, time management is something that has somehow come naturally to me. Um, And even when I was a very young kid, I would write down every day and I had exams. This project is done, today I'm going to study this much maths. And I had calendars for myself. And I hate doing things at the last minute. So I take on much more than I can chew. I am often guilty of it because especially over the last few years, I've been very fortunate in terms of the opportunities I get, you know, something like World Economic Forums comes to you, Anthony Vice Chairman comes to you, or a couple of other things. I'm greedy for opportunities. I'm very greedy. So I often take on much more than optically I can choose. Um, I have a strong sense of priorities. Now I write things down in an Excel sheet. So I know my personal priority is XYZ. Like I had a phase where it was, I was pregnant and my house was getting constructed those were personal priorities you know I was doing xyz so I have personal professional and growth priorities I write them down and now I aggressively say no that's the only way that is what's really... the
0: difference between personal uh, sorry professional and growth priorities
1: That's a really good question so I think most of us lead our life in two dimensions personal which is family and professional which is work what about growth what about doing things for yourself, writing a book, learning public speaking,
0: which doesn't need to be boxed in into it's either not professional, or professional or personal.
1: It's something you do for yourself to grow. And I think most of us need to move from a two D life to a three D life. So for me, personal growth is very important. You know, you had earlier asked a question of how can you be a CEO and calm. Perhaps in those phases, my personal growth energizes me. I almost feel I need a major personal growth project every 12 to 18 months. Otherwise, I'll go nuts.
0: What is it currently? Uh,
1: uh, Will be revealed soon.
0: (laughs) All right. Do you allocate your time more efficiently or your wealth more efficiently? Uh,
1: My time. Much more.
0: That's you work in the wealth management space, but that I guess that's a function of the fact that you've been doing time management since you were 12, 13.
1: And for a professional, perhaps the greatest asset you have is your time, the most valuable thing I have is my time, right? That's very well put. So, for you, time is definitely time is actually money.
0: You've said about the superhero syndrome and you know the urge to do everything yourself. How have you managed to slowly wean yourself off it as much as possible? I'm assuming you haven't fully weaned yourself off it.
1: Quite a bit. Uh, not. Where would you
0: say on a percentage basis where you were maybe like 10 years ago and where you are today?
1: Professionally, I think I've gone from 100 to like doing 100% to doing 20%. Professionally, I think I've done a very good job delegating. In fact, the running joke is I only delegate. So I think professionally, I'm very happy. Personally, I still take a lot more load uh, than I should. So personally, I have some work to do. How do you
0: go from 100 to 20%? What were the unlocks that happened along the way that delegation is, but it's just what you do, but like something internally would have had to change for you to be able to get comfortable with delegation?
1: I think becoming a CEO honestly changed it. Uh, And people actually told me, you are taking on too much load. Why don't you share the problems? And I have learned to share the problems. The people, I I think in uh, 18, 19, when we were going through really tough times, and I was not delegating, people came to me and said, Boss Radhika, share the problem with us. And in going from 100 to 80, I realized how relieving it was. And said, 80 to 20 journey has been a lot easier than the 100 to 80.
0: Radhika, you're a parent to a almost one and a half year old Yeah,
1: almost one and a half year old.
0: So now you've got that additional, um, I think it's a more important responsibility or equally important responsibility as to all the other ones that you pay as well, right? How has parenting changed you as a
1: person? I would love to give you an answer saying that parenting has drastically transformed me. No, I mean, I actually don't think it has. Um I think the only thing is it's made me sharper about my priorities because I compare every random thing I get asked to do to the smiling face of my son. Um, I think that that that's all it is. Uh, but I don't think it's made a drastic change uh, in me. I'm certainly a I'm certainly happy uh, when I'm around my son. It, my team says it's a natural stress buster. I mean toddlers giggling is a natural uh, stress buster. But I don't have a dramatic answer for how I've changed, except my sense of priorities.
0: Um, your husband, Nalin, is the chief investment officer at Edelweiss. On
1: the alternative side, yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, it's this is very interesting because you and Nalin are spouses, of course, your parents and you're also working to in the same organization. That's an incredible amount of... Um, I think commingling of yeah, personal, business, professional life, etc. Yeah. How do you, how the two of you handle it and manage to find ways to kind of not, because everything that like the two of you do together in some sense is connected.
1: It is. Uh, you know, we were classmates also and we work together quite closely on projects. So how we started dating. And I think perhaps uh, we realized that we actually work together quite well. Uh, even in college, uh, and have run a company. So I think it's been a long journey. I won't say it is the easiest journey. Um, I always tell people working with your spouse has your share of complications. Um, I think one thing that does help is that both of us have very different personal interests. We don't agree outside of food, I think. like He doesn't touch Hindi music and I only listen to Hindi music. He is a very passionate marathoner. I love my poetry. So we have spaces of separation and space. And I think that's extremely important. Going
0: back to something that we discussed earlier, I don't have the concept of work-life balance. Yeah. Does that, What does it really mean when you say I don't have the concept of work-life balance?
1: I don't actively try to obsess over whether... I'm living a balanced work life. Versus ko I play it organically because otherwise you will die in mom guilt. As a woman, someone will make you feel guilty about something, especially as a new mother, so someone will make you feel guilty. I enjoy my work, as I've said many times. I enjoy my time with my son. Sometimes that I mean that means that. I have to travel for 10 days to the US and not see my son when he's 6 months old. But I do it without guilt. And sometimes, that means that I can leave the office at 3 to go be at a Janmashtami celebration with my son in school. And I can also do that without guilt. And that is, work-life doesn't need to be balanced on a day-to-day basis. Work-life, personal growth, demand different things from you at different points in time.
0: What lets you do that? And that's not easy. Like this thing of being able to avoid guilt as a I mean as a as a a young mother uh, as a pro successful CEO as well what's your advice for other um, leaders women or men because this this I think this guilt towards uh, I think there's also competitive parenting uh, it's probably more <laughs> uh, competitive than competitive CEOing. I'm. Oh assuming, God! It's right?
1: competitive motherhood versus competitive CEO. Like motherhood eats everything.
0: That's right. So I mean, how have you reached a stage where you don't see the pre- so you don't see the pressure to feel guilt? It's not about feeling guilt. There is no need to feel guilt. But it's really about you being comfortable with yourself as well.
1: Very simple. I know I'm giving. You. My best shot and my best human shot. And as I said, in 2018, when I gave my top, I realized I am not superhuman. I do not need to be superhuman. I am not super mom. I am not super CEO. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need to live a life. And I need to do all that. My When I was going for maternity leave, it's funny, when I was going to have a baby, let me not say that, my bosses and I never discussed how long I would be on maternity leave. We never had the conversation. We never needed to. I think that's the other thing that helps. There is enough trust. I'm doing my best. They know I'm doing my best. I came back in three weeks. They said, why did you come back in three weeks? I said, because I wanted to come back. And the transition was just seamless. The belief that you're giving it your best, and your best is not perfect. But hey, we weren't brought up as perfect children, and we were reasonably okay, no.
0: What are the books that you're currently reading?
1: I have to confess, I am reading nothing right now because I just don't have time. I listen to poetry. What were the most recent books that you've read probably in the last 6 months or 12 God. months? No, Anything I, interesting? I, I'm genuinely telling you, since I've had a child, I just haven't had the time because what happens is I come home at 6, 6.30 and I'm with him till 9.00 and I'm eating dinner, etc. And then I'm working from 10 to 12. So there is no... Time, my I just got a book from Rajesh's office, which I started reading yesterday. It's called The CEO Next Door. Uh, so I'm like twenty pages into that. Uh, it's interesting. It's a it's about the fact that uh, you don't need to be an extraordinary person to be a CEO. So I, I found that interesting.
0: And when you do read books, is it? Kindle? Uh, physical, physical, like, physical,
1: physical. I love the feeling of a physical book and coffee and sitting on the balcony. I hate Kindle. No more screen exposure.
0: This is a question that I'm borrowing from this long-running BBC show uh, called Desert Island BIS. Uh, what five things would you take with yourself if you were to be stranded on a desert island for the...
1: It's things and not people, right?
0: its things
1: okay cuz otherwise i would like the of family course. family starts. of course ah uh, i would take a pen and paper because i would get a chance to do uh, a lot of writing ah uh, i enjoy cooking uh, so that would be some food related stuff would be nice some wine related stuff uh, would be uh, a bottle of wine okay a bottle of wine a pan maybe like yeah a pan, a, maybe, yeah, like a, a yeah. pan to cook you know i'm vegetarian but we'll figure out something uh, on an island. That's four items. That's four items. I think I'm reasonably okay. I take some music. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm reasonably okay. You know, you leave me alone, have a glass of wine, write. I'd be quite happy.
0: Give us a music recommendation.
1: Give us some music recommendation. It's going to sound very boring to this generation because I only listen to old music. I mean. My favorites are Ghazals by Jagdik Jeet Singh. So this is going to sound tremendously boring, but that's what it is. And it's interesting. I don't listen to music for the beats. I listen to it for the words. So I will read and listen to songs again and again and again and absorb the antra and look at the lyrics. And if I don't understand a word in Urdu, I will look it up. Um, And I am the best Antakshari player on earth. Because I know the lyrics to everything, but I can never play Antakshri because I sing like a frog, because of my voice.
0: How would you describe yourself if, if, if I had to give you, like, you know, you could pick one adjective or word to to name yourself? It's a nickname or 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 a description. What would you? What would that be?
1: My parents call me Aflatun. Could is you like, trans- yeah. which is like a hurricane, a tornado, like. Everywhere.
0: All right, Aflatoon it is.
1: Aflatoon it is. So that's the one. They keep calling me Aflatoon. So Aflatoon it is.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Radhika. Truly enjoyed the conversation.